Welcome, everyone, to the next episode of our Coffee Breakdown podcast. Um, today's guest is Nick, Professor Nick Lopez Cardoso. Uh, he's a professor at the Eindhoven University of Technology. He's had been in the field for the field of fusion for over 40 years now, and he's been vice chair of the European Domestic Agency of ITER. He's also been the head of the fusion research program here in the Netherlands. And so with that, it's a great pleasure to have you on the podcast, Nick. Pleasure to be here. So to start, um, I would just like to have maybe some general opinions. Uh, so your okay. research nowadays, I, I read, is more into sort of like the economics of fusion, how we're going to get the get a working, once we have a working reactor, get it involved in producing energy for the world um, and what sort of considerations are necessary to account for how to do that. And so I just like your opinions on like what you think is sort of the fusion timeline. What are the major challenges involved in getting a fusion power plant? And then maybe just what impact having fusion power would have uh, overall? I know that's a very broad question, but I'd like your that's opinions. a lot. That that that's a very broad <laughs> question indeed. But um, let's let's uh, try to peel that off. Um, first of all, I should say we don't have a demonstrated fusion power plant yet. So if you talk about timelines or projections, we can only say how fast it could possibly go if everything goes well. Of course. If there's anything that turns out to be too difficult or take much longer than we expected, it can take uh, as long as, as you want or may not have not even <clears throat> ever happen. But um, so and but that those are questions that, that is pure speculation. Um, yeah, it's a, the what if kind of questions. Okay, but but the other the other question you you can ac actually analyze. You can say um, once we have uh, a working fusion power plant or a fuel for that matter, so a demonstrated principle. Um, how long will it take um, to roll that out and make it available to the world at a scale that is meaningful? Um, and there again. Uh, if you think of socioeconomics or techno-economics, what a quite common approach is, is, is to, to estimate the, the, post, the, the probable cost, cost of electricity or cost of investment of that fusion power plant, and then sort of work out how it, how it's, uh, how it works with the competition with other sources. That again is trying to predict the economic circumstances in tens of years from now. And to my opinion, as, as we have just been demonstrated in the past year, I would say trying to predict the, the economy of the world over uh, a period longer than let's say half a year or so is already very tricky. And um, let alone 30 or 40 years from now. So I would also try to stay away from that. In, in fact, in my work, I, I stay away from that. I, um, but still, you can ask very meaningful questions. Um, and I'll illustrate it with an example. Um, um, if we want fusion to have an impact in the world, um, you have to think of 10,000 power plants. If the average power plant would produce a gigawatt electric or other useful power, um, that would add up to some tens of percent um, of the total energy demand of the world, and which is still increasing. So 10,000 may not even be enough. But let's say the 10,000 power plant perspective. And I'd say if you're if today your ambition was to do only 1,000 power plants, we might as well stop. And then it's a useless uh, exercise. So we should be aiming for 10,000, order 10,000 power plants. So 
Well, then the question is, um, if we want to have that by 2050, which would be really nice, um, and we don't have one yet, so let's say at the very earliest, they could, those 10,000 could start rolling off the, 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 the factory production line in 2030, that is super optimistic, of course. Then you have 20 years to build 10,000 plants, that's 500 per year. 500 power plants of a few billion euros, dollars each, corresponds to an investment, an annual investment of a few trillion, few percent of the world global domestic product, the global gross domestic product. Mm -hmm. um, so that is a very big industry. It is also an industry that is about 100 times larger than the fishing industry today. And it's much larger than fishing has ever been. Um, it would provide jobs for a hundred million or a few hundred million people. So, you're, you're, so if that is the the image, you'd say, well, to have such an industry in place uh, in eight years from now, that is a bit of a tall order. In fact, if you look at at other technologies. A, the typical um, process is that they first show an exponential growth during which the industry is built up yeah. until they reach at some point a level where they say, okay, and from here we go linear. And you see that with smartphones, you see that with, uh, with the LED light, lightning, lighting. Um, you saw it with the introduction of other new technologies so, but, but just seeing that, okay, so we can ask the question, if fusion works, how fast could we build up that industry? And once we have that industry, how fast could we roll this out? Mm -hmm. Well, then, so you see very quickly that 2050 is um, too early. Mm -hmm. I mean, even if everything goes super well, um, <clears throat> but then, those same arguments also hold for most of the other energy technologies that we need in the transition. The bottom line is 2050 is going to be very difficult to achieve um, by any standard. I see. So, so, so guess... if you were to ask um, how about 2070, that starts to be a much more reasonable uh, request for, for the energy transition and then fusion could play a role. Okay. Do you think that we will make it to 2070 without any sort of reduction in, you know, the the emissions and and so on and so forth, well, the ecological <clears throat> standpoint? Because it's not without any reduction. Yeah. But but yeah, you're right. Um, the the main reductions come towards the end of the transition. <coughs> um, yeah. Uh, no, but yeah, I mean, we have lost a lot of time. Mm. We have known that we should make that transition for, well, decades at least, and and some scientists for many decades. But I think on the political agenda, climate change and so, and the fact that we should really move to renewables and carbon low, low carbon technologies has been clear for at least 20 years. Mm -hmm. And uh, so far, nothing has happened. Um, so, yeah, you can you can look at the nice statistics of how solar and and wind are growing, but the percentage of um, zero emission generation in the world energy mix is uh, not much has not much grown yet. Well, I, I think that also maybe you can comment on this. There's this new wave of optimism, let's say, in fusion uh, in terms of startups and yes. investment in general. Do you think that this is this already included in your analysis of this required exponential? Oh, yes, curve? of course, of course. Yes. Right. Oh, no. What, what's so, so it's, it's very good. You mentioned that. Mm -hmm. And it's also a super interesting and indeed uh, hopeful development. 
Um, because if you take the roadmap, the government mainstream roadmap, you'd, you'd see ITER getting, well, first plasma in about five years or so, then taking about 10 years to, to, be, to reach full power performance. So the actual Q equals capital Q equals 10 uh, power multiplication. So the specs for which it was built results to be well obtained by the end of the, of the 2030s. Mm -hmm. um, so demo is planned to be, to be built after that. Demo is not a power plant, but demo is a demonstrator. And if you're well, very quick, so you, you finish the, the design, which is already on the table, of course, you finish the design um, shortly after you get the ETA results in, you start building early 40s, get it, get first plasma in demo, um, mid 50s. So then that's demo. Then still you still need to to move to the first generation of proper power plants. Mm -hmm. So then you you're talking about 2070 for the first dozen or so. Um, and that, of course, that is completely meaningless in terms of uh, climate change mitigation. <clears throat> that doesn't say that doesn't mean to say that it's a waste uh, in that case, because because we are going through an energy transition. We should go through an energy transition. We should do it as fast as we can with any means we have which probably means that by the time it's done, it's a forced transition, which you have to do with, with the technology that you have, and you don't have the time to develop smarter, newer technologies. Um, so that means that probably in 2050 or 60, you, you're still be looking at further developments and, and maybe even a second transition, a second transition 2.0 zero if you like mm. um, and then the, the the really the new technologies such as fusion could come into play but if you want to, to have it earlier you need to go to the yeah to follow the time path as are uh, sketched by the by the startups indeed mm -hmm. so they typically come with a i would say a demonstration power plant in the early 2030s so about um, the time that ITER should be starting up. Yeah. Maybe even yeah. before. <laughs> yeah. But you should also, and, so, and this is really very fundamental. If you think that you're aiming for 10,000 power plants, the first 10 or even the first 100 don't matter so much. They are there to learn. And you should also use them to learn. Mm -hmm. So, So if you... In the government programs, there's a danger that that you try to build the the perfect machine the first time, and that's not going to work probably. Whereas the startups, they they're not even trying to build a per perfect machine, and the machines they build in in many of the cases uh, they explicitly say that. Take take um, Tokamak Energy, they'll say we'll build a new machine. And we'll use it for half a year mm. just to see if it works, if it does what we thought it should do. And then on to the next model. Um, so, so in terms of learning, of innovation, that is a much better way. Also, then you don't have to solve all the problems in, in a single machine. You can, uh, you can take them one by one, so to speak. Okay. And I think that sort of is a very technological approach to the problem, sort of this rapid development and um, prototyping is mm -hmm. perhaps not necessarily the same as a scientific approach, which I guess is more along the lines of the, the ITER and European fusion roadmap, right? Um, do you see that these two have things to learn from each other or are you sort of all for the, the technological route of just 
trying to oh. build as oh. many burn it like just burn through reactive designs until something works <laughs> well, it's, 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 it's not quite like that of course yeah. there's a, a lot of um let's say knowledge-based um design going on mm. so so no definitely the startups and and they're, they're keen to, they're the first to say that themselves they build of course on the knowledge base and the technology base that's been created with the mainstream programs it's a government sponsored program it's always going to be like that in any technology i mean the iphone was also built on on knowledge that was developed in universities um and then at some point so the startups of which there are about 40 in the world now um they typically say well with the present knowledge base and technology base we think we can build a working reactor and maybe so this is my interpretation but if you look at the designs, they'll say, well, maybe it's not going to work for 40 years. Maybe it's going to work for one year. And then we have learned so much that the next one, which we'll build in a couple of years, will be better. And that, yeah, so, so then you, you, you gradually take on. So the first one, to, to be very concrete, you'll buy the tritium. Mm -hmm. And you're happy if you have your tritium breeding ratio of um, well, less than one. The next one, yeah, at some point you'll need to, to get the tritium, but for the second one, you can probably buy the deficit of tritium. You're breeding it, but maybe not quite enough. So you still have to buy a little bit mm -hmm. externally. And so, so you see those yeah, technology readiness levels, if you like, uh, they don't all have to be uh, fully developed for the first power plant. Okay. If, if, you, if you think of, of life cycle, of, of uh, activation of materials, of, of uh, decommissioning, and so those are things you, you start to worry about. Yeah, once you have, once you start to build power plants in, in series. I'm curious then if there are such a proliferation of, of startup reactor designs, and I assume they all want to try DT to produce the fusion power, it would, would there be a, a sort of like a, you know, um, a rush in the market to pick up the tritium, <laughs> right? At least currently. <laughs> yeah, that's a very good point. Um, Maybe I can say something more generic first, and then we can come back to the tritium and sure. there may be other uh, critical issues. Um, so the, the startups, they represent, let's say, a dozen or more different concepts. And, and all of them could be considered as high risk in some way and high potential. So what investors do, they have a portfolio. It's, it's very much like having a portfolio of, of shares, so to speak, and you have some that are very high risk and high potential, and you have some that are more, you know, quieter in their risk profile. Um, but this is the way to move on, to move very quickly, to, to manage that risk by having, uh, having 10 different ones at the same time. Uh, and follow them closely, of course. It's interesting, perhaps, that to, to know that um, in fission, when fission was introduced, so, so you know probably that we speak of Gen 1 and Gen 2, Gen 3, and now Gen working on Gen 4 fission. Mm -hmm. um, but Gen, Gen 1 fission was basically a bunch of prototypes, mm -hmm. about 15 different ones or so. And only a handful of those made it to the series production, not even quite series, but okay, the, um, which, which became the Gen 2, which underwent improvements, but basically remained the same set of concepts. And it took 
40 years or so before the next generation was announced, the Gen 3, which never quite uh, took off. Mm -hmm. So most of the reactors are still Gen 2. And Gen 4, yeah, we are talking about it. We are designing it, but uh, it's not yet on the table. Mm -hmm. um, so, but, but there, so, so this idea of developing a lot of prototypes, different concepts at the same time, I think if you want to learn, to, to build in learning and innovation in a process where you're building large unit size things that take years to build, so your innovation cycle is going to be many years rather than week, weeks or days, like in some other businesses. Um, the only way to, to do that is by, by building them in parallel. Mm -hmm. yeah. And then I guess it's also in a way, I mean, this is comes to a concept that you have mentioned a lot of times. It's also a way to avoid this technological lock-in, right? Yeah. If you Exactly. allow many startups to try many different designs then there's sort of the expertise on how to work all those designs in the world at once right so yeah. that that way there's sort of enough ideas to keep things fresh um well so this is a very important thing you you mentioned there um mm -hmm. so so we're looking at initially an exponential growth at least we should be looking at an exponential growth to build up that industry. And during exponential growth, so you, you go from, let's say from one to 10 to 100. And suppose your, your number one power plant, suppose you had only one uh, technology selected and your number one power plant was a tokamak. And for your second generation, you, now you're going to build 10, you're, you're going to order 10 and you're not quite happy with the tokamak. And in the meantime, the Stellarator looks better to you. I, on the basis of your one tokamak, are you going to order 10 Stellarator power plants? If you haven't seen one yet, mm. not very likely. And if you had 10, because it's exponential, it gets worse and worse. If you have, if your second generation is 10 Stellarators, is your third generation going to be 100 inertial confinement plants? Not very likely, because mm -hmm. it, that's just way too riskful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so first of all, it is difficult per se in a growth scenario to avoid technology lock-in. So, yeah, so I don't think anyone has figured out how to, to get around that. Um, but, but certainly, if you want to build in diversity, you should do that as early as possible. Yes, so I think later that... on, you're, you're, it's all way too expensive to, to change horses. Mm. And it's funny because you mentioned fission as well. And I think that may have been what happened. Why between Gen 2 and Gen 3, there was just no, I guess, interest in some ways because the technology had, it was also very costly, I guess. And yeah. so there was just more on the like there was more risk for someone investing in a new design when the old designs worked right and so yeah well so, so the, the 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 crux really is that i mean if you're in a sort of steady state mm -hmm. it's fine to to try out another type on the level of one and then maybe if it if it's much better than the others you're starting to to gradually replace the the not so good models with the better model. But during rapid growth, it means that you, you have your whole production set up to, to make model one, and you, you only have a prototype of model two, are you going to make the jump in production capacity? So the factor 10, while also changing type, that is uh, very unlikely. Mm. And At so, least if it's a radical innovation. I mean, if if of course if you go from 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 red painted magnetic coils to blue painted red magnetic coils, that can be done. Right. So in in that sense, you really uh, 
do you see this as like a good development of all these uh, startups? Absolutely, coming yes. in. Yes. Yeah. I'd say because also there's much more money flowing into the system and many more people are working in the field and industry is getting involved. There's, they, these companies think of supply chains. So it's really reorganizing the whole field. Um, many more engineers, engineers from other fields, very importantly. So <clears throat> um, people have um, have experience with, with other big, well, fast-moving high-tech projects. SpaceX or mm. things like that. Um, so that brings a whole new energy to the, the fusion program. Yeah, uh, much needed, I think, as well. Yes. Yes. Yeah. There's urgency. There's you know, not sitting on problems. Just if you have two solutions for one problem, um, don't spend too much time on selecting the which which is the absolute best one mm -hmm. just decide yeah and so let's switch gears a bit i would like to switch gears a bit and yeah. so you've brought in fission as well and so once we okay. move to having let's say a proven fusion design it needs to enter the energy market somehow and as far as i see it or at least as far as being talked about Fission and fusion kind of occupy the same space in the mm -hmm. energy market. So do you foresee them clashing, being competitors or kind of working together? Like how, how do you foresee the entry into yeah. the energy market? Yeah, so that there are two concepts that are closely related that you address here. The one is, let's say, competition and market. Yeah. Um, let, let me start by saying that that if there's if there is competition, it means we're in a good place mm. as the world. It means we can afford to say, well, we we have we have two solutions, but we we think A is nicer than B. <clears throat> um, and so the other concept was a market introduction. Um, you have to realize that if any product, and this definitely has, has held for, for wind and solar and fission when it came into the market, they, go, they undergo a learning curve. And the learning curve says that the price drops if you, um, well, for every factor 10 uh, that you make more of them. So if you, if you mean to make, so in case of fusion or fission, if you if you plan to make 10,000 plants and you, your market introduction with, is with one plant, you still have three factors 10 of production capacity to go, four factors 10, uh, which means that the price is going to drop. You have to expect that. And you're competing with the things that have already gone through that price reduction. You see the same as solar. You have seen the, <clears throat> the price the drop in price. Mm -hmm. So the upshot is that you're never going to be competitive at market introduction. Right. It's almost by definition not the case. And so there are two solutions to that because, because you can have a policy where you, know, where you say, well, but, but still we want to make this energy transition happen. Um, and, and one is <clears throat> um, to to subsidize or to give tax breaks or to have any other kind of scheme, government sponsored scheme to make the introduction happen. So that's happened with wind and solar and fission for that matter. Um, and, and the other two things can go at the same time is, is identifying a niche market where your particular source somehow performs or does something that all the others can't. Hmm. So then that customer is going to be willing to pay maybe five or 10 times the price because it, there's no other way to fill that gap. But the whole, the whole concept of competition, of competitively entering a, a market for a new technology is, I think, uh, doesn't exist. Hmm. Okay. 
because I, I I am familiar with the concept of like early, what's it called? Early adopters, I believe, that there's yeah. always some percentage of the market or or people involved in the market um, who are just sort of those risk takers. They see something new and shiny and they say, well, I'm willing to take a gamble, right? Yeah. So, so in that sense, there's always a starting sort of pot, but then you, you do have to build from there into actually breaking in, right? Yeah, but the, the, so the, the people who like the shiny things when nobody else has them yet, hmm. I mean, that that is for CD players and things like that. <laughs> exactly, like that's- The, the energy is... market, first of all, it, it, it gives you something you already had. Mm -hmm. So nobody's going to be impressed if you say, I, I, my electricity comes from a fusion power plant because um, it's still just electricity. Mm -hmm. um, and secondly, the energy market is the, sing is the largest single market in the world. There's a turnover of 10 trillion or so per year. So this this is not a gadget market. Uh, so I, I think when you speak of the niche market where it can enter, mm -hmm. so for solar solar cells, those were the satellites. So in the early 1960s, solar cells, well, they were ridiculously expensive, of course. Um, so, but there was a market, there was a client who was willing to pay whatever they asked because otherwise the satellites wouldn't work. And you have to realize that all those satellites that are circling the globe and provide our um, navigation networks and, and uh, communication networks, they are powered by solar power. Mm -hmm. All of that would not have been possible without those very expensive early solar cells. So yeah, that's a niche market. And once you have that, you get some production going, your price goes down. And then the niche market, so a somewhat larger, somewhat less niche market can can open up. Um, so so then the question becomes: Is there a niche market for fusion, mm -hmm. which is not accessible to fission? Yeah. Do you have some ideas on? on things like that? Well, um, of course, in their profile, fission and fusion look similar. Mm -hmm. They're point sources. They provide steady output. They don't like to be switched on and off. Um, and as such, they are not very good for stabilizing the, the net, for instance. Mm -hmm. um, And uh, well, fusion, so, so they're quite similar, um, but of course, fission has the drawbacks that are well known, whether, whether that's technically fully, um, let's say, deserved is, is not a question of, but um, there, there are the issues with, uh, with waste and, uh, and danger. Um, and fusion has, so I think you can say fusion fundamentally doesn't have any possibility to, exp to, to have uh, explosive mishaps or so. Mm -hmm. On the waste, okay, we can have a talk because it's also not wasteless, but let's mm. say it's lower and, and not as long lived as with fission. The other hand, the Gen 4 fission reactors are also aiming for much reduced waste and for increased safety, so they'll come closer together. Mm. Um, so, yeah. But, I mean, there, again, um, if fission does the same thing cheaper, sooner, it's good for mankind. Mm -hmm. And um, we shouldn't think of that in terms of competition i see so yeah. it's, it's sort of it's another tool in our tool belt let's say to yeah well we don't have so many so it's, it's yeah. not like like the box is filled with with lots of options and we are mm -hmm. we are embarrassed for choice mm -hmm. um 
And, and you might say fusion, well, you can definitely say fusion is the only energy um, generating technology of which we know that the physics process exists and should work. It works in the stars. Mm -hmm. and we know pretty well how it should work in a fusion reactor but we have never been able to realize it yet so that alone is is enough reason to to make it happen i mean un until we have seen well i'd say at least a handful of working fusion reactors we're not in a position to say well anything about cost desirability or so but let's first show it mm, i see okay and then in that sense then in the process of making the fusion reactor work right yeah. i mean there there's decisions that must be made on how to eventually move the design towards an economical product mm -hmm. but in that sense from your words do you think that now is a time where we should even be concerned about how do we how do we make components that are mass producible or with materials that are you know readily available and easy to, to make um, are these considerations that play a role in the scientific development of the fusion reactor currently or do you think that's the next phase after we've already proven the fusion process can be sustained? Um, yeah, it's a bit of a mix. I'd say if, if, if you had technological solutions that essentially hinge on materials of which you know there's too little of, yeah, unless you think, okay, we'll do this for the demonstrator and then we'll come up with a, a better solution, that's fine. But if you already know this can only work with this particular element and there's not enough of it maybe not hmm. and and things like um, the mass production so the developing from modular and so um, that is the way to go for many reasons and uh, the the main reason in this phase is if you want to learn you you need to shorten the innovation cycle. So with, with your hand designs, uh, all components are different machines that take 10 years to put together. Yeah, you almost by definition are working with um, obsolete technology. Um, so, so if you have coils that can be mass produced, <clears throat> you really want to, to be able to, to build your machine much quicker than in 10 years. If you can put a machine together in three years, test it, then you can learn. Then you can learn in time for the next machine. Mm. If, if you take 10 years to build, and in 10 years you should also be launching your next generation, the next generation is going to be exactly the same as your first generation because you didn't learn. Right. <clears throat> yeah. Ah, that's also also interesting because i mean there's the sort of like the economics of scale component uh to mm -hmm. it but also the the learning component as you mentioned right like i mean how how fast even even if is it sufficient to know it doesn't work to learn from it or yeah. do you also need to actually you know have the people there to figure out okay what could work instead Right, that that process is not guaranteed to fit into a time timeline. No, but right? that's that's a, a big problem. That's um, well, it's also interesting that if you analyze it, you'd say there's during exponential growth there's a time between generations when you grow by a factor of ten, say. Mm -hmm. um, so that is the exponential growth time. Let's say the tenfolding time. <clears throat> then there's the building time. If your build time is much longer than that, you have to already order the next hundred power plants if the first ten have not been built. That's unfortunate. Mm. 
Um, so you want to, to have your build time in any case shorter than your tenfolding time or something like that. But if you also want to learn, you need, yeah, you need to switch on the machine, see the results and stick that in your next design. So now you, your build time should be much shorter than the, uh, than the generation time because um, in that period, you first, you have to evaluate the results, make decisions on the next, and then you have to build the next one. Um, and then you go within one learning cycle. You say, okay, well, we have to build a machine while well, it has all sorts of components. <coughs> You're probably in parallel trying to improve all the components. And so the final learning step is when you put everything together. But how fast do you learn in, in each of those components? Think mm. of the components of, of our regular Torquemac-like fusion power plants. How quickly can you develop um, a much better gyrotron or a much better neutral beam injector or mm -hmm. <clears throat> a much better cryo pump for that matter? Those things take years to develop. Mm -hmm. um, and so the, all that learning has to be much quicker if, if, if you don't want to build the same, make the same mistakes every time. Um, and so if you compare that to the iPhone, for instance, or the smartphone in general, like the iPhone, which is nice because they are numbered every year you have a, <laughs> a new one. Yeah. Um, and, but the Apple can, can put together, so they, they're trying out new cameras and new everything, but they put it together, they take four to six weeks to make to put a prototype to, together in the factory, evaluate it. So their cycle is a few weeks. And that is then well in time to decide on the net, yeah, what the, the next model is going to look like, produce it in time for the customers to have it available when the, the new model is launched. Um, so there you have cycle time, the innovation cycle time, a short few weeks. The generation time is a year. The build time uh, is, well, once it's in the factory, is weeks. Um, so that there everything is in the, in the right order, so to speak. Hmm. It's interesting because so then your solution to sort of get this sort of scaling factor um, is just shorten the amount of time it takes for one cycle. Absolutely. Yeah. But I'm curious then on the, the learning part of that cycle, like, because as you said, even learning how to make like a new NBI system takes years, but is, is, do you have any, do you see any way to reduce that in any way? Like it's ha having a lot of different examples to pull from doesn't necessarily mean that people will learn faster. At least in my head, it, it's hard to equate the two. Um, oh, this is, that is a fundamental problem with things that are so big. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> that you have your new device. Well, in, in a sort of <clears throat> mathematical description, you say, okay, first, first you need to evaluate. First, you're not learning. Then you're starting to learn. And then there's an, an end to the learn. At some point, you have learned everything you want to learn about. And there's to learn from that particular device. Um, and then you have to use all that learning to make the next generation or the next model and go through the cycle again. <clears throat> so, so your learning goes, so, um, so maybe I am indicating cost. So the cost is here Then you start to learn your cost is going down. Then that is the cost of the next thing, the next uh, iteration, and then it stops. So it's almost like a step function. And the, the, the question is, when when is that learning happen? Of course, it's spread in time, but that's only mathematically, you could say, okay, first you haven't learned, then you have learned. So somewhere is time. And that time, that moment in time, you should compare to your build time, your generation time. Um, <coughs> yeah. Mm, so it's, it's not a matter of absolutes, it's just relatives trying to get the two like the Absolutely. build time and the yes. learning time in yeah. sync with each other. Yeah. yeah. To get like sort of the yeah. optimal cycle. 
Yeah, and, and it see. also has to do with the so it has to do with the exponential growth time. So 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 this is particularly difficult once while you're growing very fast, because then the risk of trying out something new is multiplied by ten every time, because you're growing. Mm. <clears throat> um, so what you typically see in radical innovation. Now now maybe. I'm going um, way out of my way uh, out of my field of expertise, but um, you saw the the PC develop, so it became faster and faster and better and better. And at some point, it was kind of fast enough. So then, design started to be much more important. Uh, um, you get fancy models; everybody could make those things. So a lot of different brands. Mm -hmm. But that, as a as a computer, that kind of leveled off. And only then was there space for a radical innovation, such as the iPad and the iPhone. You wouldn't have developed the iPad together with the, the PC. So there needs to be at least, if I understand this correctly, some kind of working foundational model, and then you can build on top of it. Yeah, so so one, one during the time you're growing really fast, and it is super, well, disruptive. If at the same time you think, ah, oh, maybe this is not the best we can do, let's try something else. Mm -hmm. Once you are in a steady state, your sales are going well, mm -hmm. that is a very good moment to say, ah, oh, but we also have another product that we can build on this, and you, you just open up a new market. Then doesn't this kind of go against the fact of parallelizing the development across many designs? And no, I would say. So there are two moments in in, in that development where you can parallelize hmm. or have radical innovation at the very beginning, beginning, because then it's still cheap. Well, it's not cheap in absolute terms, of course, but it's much cheaper than when you try to do it later. You can you can have a lot of parallel developments. Mm. Then you have to sort of down select because it's too expensive to, to keep trying them all. And you so you end up with a handful, just like with in fission concepts that work. And well, that is a good situation if you have a handful of concepts that work. Mm -hmm. You start building them and you start maybe build hundreds of them. Um, yeah, and you're still learning. So it's still quite possible that by that time you have a new idea that's even better, that promises to be even better. Yeah, but those have already gone through the price reduction and and, uh, and the series productions. And so, so the new idea, I think, um, can only blossom once this market has kind of settled a little bit. I see. So in sort of like this, this tenfolding time or this yeah. tenfolding process, you don't need to say all of the 10 new reactors have to be the same design. You can maybe do five with the same and then the other five, you can pick some other ones, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. And so in that way, you're simultaneously taking advantage of the expertise you have built from the original prototype, but not putting all your eggs in one basket. Right. So is this sort of like the ideal approach then? Yeah, well, we're trying to figure that out. If there's a mathematically defined ideal approach, okay. uh, it's, it's like a game theory. Mm. Um, it's, it's a lot like evolution in a way. So, so this whole process where you say you need some time to generate a lot of new ideas and you need time to to down select. Um, and so there, there are two timescales in this, in this process. So, and, and like in evolution, if you have something that has new generations every few days, <coughs> like uh, the Drosophila fruit fly, mm. um, then it's the evolution, the, the pace of evolution is not generation limited, I'd say it's it's limited by how quickly you generate new mutations. On the other hand, if you have 
a very long generation time, you will have plenty of, of mutations in the DNA. Yeah, but it takes ages before you can down select them. So then, then the, the pace of evolution is a generation time limited. And it's the same for technology, I, I should think. Mm. I see. So that then it still lends well to the argument that we should reduce the generation time as much as possible, that we have more chances for beneficial mutations, <laughs> right? Well, reducing the generation time, well, the generation time in our case during exponential growth would be the time for tenfolding, for instance. Mm. Um, and if that's 10 years, that's doubling every three years. That's okay-ish. Faster would be nice, but this is already really super fast. Okay. But if you have 10 years to develop your, to, to, have, to learn from the previous generation, maybe do a few quick prototypes and get ready for, to, to build your new generation based on your new principles, your, your new learning in time to deliver them, to have them operational after 10 years, that's a stretch. I see. Okay. I think for, for fusion reactors or fission reactors for that matter, you, you see that the, the second generation, which, which worked like that in, in fission, it started in uh, 2017 or so, and basically lasted now, let's say 40 years, hmm. 30 years. And that that that's that's too slow in your well they they down selected from a large number of prototypes and they were lucky enough to have at least a handful of concepts that worked some better than others, but yes. We, we don't even we don't have the prototypes yet. Mm -hmm. so don't know that we are going to end up with a handful of working concepts. Yeah, but I, yeah, what I, I mean, if you ask me what is the, the best fusion can hope for, mm -hmm. it is that, um, yeah, a handful, half a dozen of the startups are successful in making a prototype very different technologies. I mean, it could be the, the general fusion with the lead, the liquid lead wall, or it could be the, the Commonwealth fusion systems with uh, super high fields, or it could be the first light with the a smart uh, inertial fusion concept, mm -hmm. um, or it could be any of the, the, the magnetized target fusion concepts. Um, I don't care. Okay. All of them, all, all of them that are, let's say, not physically forbidden. So, so I, I think there are also some concepts around of which you can show that it cannot possibly work. Right. But, but, but there's certainly also quite a few of those companies that are very serious, have super bright teams. Um, yeah. Let's just hope that they produce uh, concepts that work. Hmm. Okay. I, I could ask a silly question now, but if, if you were a gambling person, which one would you put your money on? <laughs> <laughs> well, that this come back, back to what I said in the beginning. I think what the investors do is, um, is spread the risk. Hmm. Maybe, maybe, yeah. Um, so uh, within the fusion community, if you like, the whole concept of risk isn't discussed very often. It's, well, we are all in the, in the, the game of hoping the risk will be small. Mm, I see. <laughs> that, that, that everything will go all right. But if you're an investor, but, and also if you're in a, a startup company, it's all about the risk, risk versus um, potential. Mm -hmm. And, and so what you see, I don't know if you have ever looked into this, but these, these startups, they go through rounds of investments. 
and the first round they typically get let's say a million or so and then maybe tens of millions and then maybe hundreds of millions but there are different investors mm -hmm. so someone with an idea there may be an angel who takes a fancy provide a hundred thousand euros so a few people can work for a year working out the idea <clears throat> that is de-risking the idea first it was only a sketch on paper then some serious work has been done so either it's still still good um, in which case the risk has been reduced or it, it can go out of the window and mm -hmm. uh, hundred thousand euros have, are gone um, but if it's still good this company may become interesting to people who are willing to put in a million hmm. because the risk has been reduced. That for the, the, the initial investor, that means that the company that was worth $100,000 now is worth a million. So he can cash in and use the money for, uh, but because this person probably had uh, 10 different projects like that, of mm -hmm. which only one was successful. So at the lower level, the, the risk can be high and you can spread the money because it's not so much money and it can work like that. If you go one tier higher, <clears throat> um, there's more money involved, but the risk has been reduced. Yeah. So I don't think you should think of this as uh, gambling persons. It's, it's um, managing a risk por uh, portfolio. Mm. <clears throat> And that that is true. I mean, even as as a as a fusion community, that's why we sort of support these these startups to give it their best shot. Because in a way, it they are also supporting us in the, in a way by pr propagating the field. If any of those ideas work, then you know we're we're all still in business, basically. <laughs> <laughs> so that's very yeah, that's true. It's it's a good point. That it, it should not be seen as, as very um, uh, all or nothing kind of uh, mentality. You should not have a look at it with an all or nothing mentality. Mm -hmm. And I want to then maybe round off with, with some other things, because you brought up this uh, topic of niche markets. So it's also a question I've been meaning to, to ask you. Are there other uses for fusion energy that is just not electricity generation i think we've yeah. talked about this before um we kind of are very narrow-minded in saying fusion to produce electricity but there may be other uses and so i was curious if you've given some thought yeah. or explored that <clears throat> yes well well first of all yes we have worked on that mm -hmm. quite quite a bit and um actually we have a a student who is graduating next week, uh, as it is, uh, oh, wow. as, we, as we are speaking, uh, <clears throat> Mustastan Majid, on on exactly this topic. Mm -hmm. um, but first of all, you should let me say this: a fusion power plant, if you make electricity with it, is a terribly inefficient electricity producer because it uses so much electricity itself. Mm. Um, so the overall plant efficiency could be. 20% or so. It could also be less, but 20% uh, would be a success. Um, which means that 80% is heat. Well, so do you think, okay, can't we just sell the heat instead of the electricity? And now, if you think at, of the electricity market, you'll see that quite likely, if all goes well, the renewables, wind and solar, are taking off and their electricity is really cheap. Mm -hmm. um, it's a sort of yeah, direct unless, conversion. Yeah, unless, yeah, and they're not making a lot of heat. Mm -hmm. uh, so un unless they are not providing an electricity for which you need a solution, that solution is not likely to be fusion. It needs to be something else. So you're looking at a market for for electricity of which the price is coming down there's plenty of electricity just not so much use for it because at the moment electricity is only 20 percent of the of the energy market and we're electrifying all sorts of processes but we are 
not going to use electricity for everything. Um, so on the other hand, we use heat a lot. So 80%, uh, well, okay, there are also intermediate cases where you use the fuel, but, but in um, the heat as used in industry today is made with fossil fuel, which we have to phase out. Hmm. And, and certainly high temperature heat, let's say the iron melts and things, um, it's very difficult to make, uh, without a gas that you can burn or, well, with the electricity, you can make a plasma, but still not super efficient. Mm. Um, so what we'll see is my take is that the price of electricity is coming down and the price of heat is going up. So now you have this source that is a very strong source of high temperature heat, medium temperature heat, 500 C or so very much uh, wanted by industry hmm. and your, your your idea is that you're going to to use 20 percent of that to, well to turn that with a 20 percent efficiency into electricity which you want to sell in the market where most of the time the electricity costs nothing so or even negative so so you'd be either you have to switch off your machine or you have to pay to to get rid of your electricity so i think that is a no-go really mm. that's the alternative so then you start to think about what can we do with the heat incidentally there, there are recent reports also from the fission community who have exactly the same problem although they are slightly better at making electricity mm. <clears throat> um, you also have to realize that if you make 80 percent heat and you don't use it you have to dump it somehow and that is going to cost money because that is an awful lot of heat to dump in surface waters and maybe that brings me to yeah to, to generalize this concept rather than thinking we have a standalone reactor and it makes a commodity such as electricity which we stick in a network and then we hope someone will buy it we need to optimize the system so then you're looking at combinations of sources or combinations of customers and producers that together are, are in a symbiosis, much cleaner and much cheaper and better than when you have the separate in a mismatched system. Yeah. Heat, of course, uh, unlike electricity, you don't want to transport heat over long distances. And there, the fact that, fish, that fusion is really safe place gives it uh, an edge here over competitors if you like um, because you could really place it right close to your customer mm. and even close to um, to urban areas so the, the the waste heat could still be used to uh, to do district heating mm -hmm. yeah so I, I think we should start to think about the energy system in such kinds of ways where you, you, you make optimum use of the energy. Energy is going to be a scarce good. Mm -hmm. So and that's, that's it, right? Because I think even e electricity itself in terms of global energy usage is only 20%-ish. Yeah. The, the rest of it is, is mostly just processing heat and, and stuff like this. So it's actually very limiting in a way to say, we're only gonna produce electricity yeah yeah sure and and i'd say you asked about market entry and competition mm. and i already said well is those forget about those concepts because at market introduction you're never going to be competitive you but you have to look for a niche market perhaps <clears throat> but so if you if you are thinking of selling electricity with fusion so then you're selling something that everybody already has mm -hmm. And you're really looking at competition. I mean, that's. I think that's an absolute no-go. All right, and Not going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you, Nick, for these wonderful insights. I think we're rounding up on our time now. So yeah, this has been a wonderful conversation. Uh, I've learned a lot more about how how we should approach fusion as a technology in general, um, and I would like to leave the final words to you do you have some words to say to anybody who might be interested in fusion 
Well, I was I was in a in a, a, a sort of school school for people from industry who are interested in fusion two weeks ago in Oxford. Um, and it was interesting because there were they could they, they had lessons they had um, um, lectures from people from the regular the mainstream fusion system, and they were all about you know how difficult it is. And yeah, it was quite deep into the, the technologies and okay, which is understandable. And then there was a forum discussion with four directors of startups, serious serious bigger startups and one of them the the director or ceo or whatever um of first light i think it was said fusion is such a wonderful field to be active in uh, because it's there's a problem and there's so many solutions for it <laughs> and and that really changed the atmosphere the the, the energy in the room i thought hmm. Because in the fusion system, we are, we are, yeah, we are kind of stuck in in. Um, there's only one way to do it, and there are so many problems, and this was completely the reverse. It was like there's so many ways to do it, <laughs> and <laughs> yeah, they all have their issues. But you you do have to realize that that some of the issues that um, that like let's say the the roadmap solutions that the Eater demo solutions have we think okay but the startups will have those problems too when they get to that point but sometimes they don't because they have radically different solutions they may not have a first wall or tritium breeding may not be their problem or yeah but it's a it's a complete shift in mentality almost to focusing on the problems and focus and it's and how hard they yeah. are to focusing on you know the potential and you know, yeah Exactly. how much there is to learn and do the challenges let's say yeah yeah, yeah. so thank you very much Nick, for coming onto the podcast my pleasure thanks for asking me and um, enjoy the day <clears throat> and to all the listeners thanks for tuning in and we'll catch you on the next episode bye <laughs>